Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with John Lund, CEO and founder of Gravy, a payment orchestration platform that's raised over $27 million in funding. John, thanks for chatting with me today. Nice to be here. To kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background? Sure. So I'm, uh, I'm John Lund, as you said, CEO and founder of Gravy. Background, originally, I was a marine biologist who ended up in payments, but I've been in payments since the, the beginning of time. So I helped start a company back in 1997 called Cybersource which was probably the first internet payment company. I went from there, that ended up being sold to Visa for an awful lot of money. I split, started another company in the security space, sold that to RSA, split. And while I was setting up another company, got a call from PayPal, who uh, I said no, because I didn't want to join a US company. And they asked me to meet the other three people in Europe. So very early, I was an employee four outside North America, 16 years ago at PayPal and helped build that from a very bad idea to a pretty successful company over the next 14 years or so, and did a variety of things there, including running or being part of the team that founded the, the venture capital part of PayPal. How do you make the jump from a marine biologist to, to payments? That sounds like quite a leap. You need to eat. That's the biggest thing. Uh, so I was based in the UK at the time, and there wasn't a lot of people employing marine biologists. So uh, I taught myself to code and kind of right place, right time. What was it like being in tech back in the the late 90s? I know that was a fascinating time and a very interesting time. What was it like for the listeners who are listening in who were just born around that time? It was wild. Like, it was crazy. I mean, uh, it was like the first over-the-top, you know, similar to what happened with the cryptocurrency crowd recently. Like, we were pioneers on the edge of something brand new. It was sort of, uh, you know, shoestrings and pirates and all the rest of it. I remember tripping over a cable and taking the entire company down once because someone had struck a cable over the front of the room. And, uh, you know, just some crazy stories at the time, but like we were inventing something that never had been done before on a medium that was brand new and like money makes the world go around. So getting people to be able to pay for stuff was important and trying to take a legacy system and make it work with something new, which was the internet really at the time was super exciting, but yeah, we had to do it the scrappy way. What about Braintree? Were you working with Brian Johnson? Well, I was at PayPal and PayPal actually bought Braintree. Part of the deal was when we bought Braintree, it was my suggestion that we should buy them. Uh, part of the deal with our CEO at the time was if we buy them, you're going over there, John. So <laughs> I went to work over with Bill and the guys at Braintree just after PayPal acquired them. Wow. Very cool. A couple of other questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder do you admire the most and who do you admire about them? See, I'm one of these people that I don't like the cult of the founder. I know it sounds weird, but I feel like the louder you scream as a founder, the harder you're going to fall. It's like one of those things. So generally, the people I admire are the people who've done it more than once. And it's not sort of a traditional tech founder, but I would like I'll put someone like Richard Branson up there as someone I'd admire because... You know, he created a category, 
won that category, went off, created another category, uh, went around the world on a hot air balloon and then woke up one morning and said, you know what, I'm going to disrupt bridal wear or I'm going to disrupt train travel. And so someone like that, it really can take a series of problems, often unrelated, and go, you know, there's a problem there, let's work out to solve it. That's the kind of individual I admire the most rather than someone who sort of got it right once. And I would say that my, my problem with a cult of the founder is it's never just about you. It's about your team. And it's far more important than you. If you're a great founder surrounded by terrible people, you're going to fail. So uh, it should be about the team that make a company, not just the individual founder. Yeah. And to your earlier point, it definitely seems like the louder you are, the harder you fall. I think we've seen that a lot in the last five years and even just the last one year with SBF. You know, SBF was all over the news. That's, you know, just dominated the news cycle. And now he's dominated the news cycle for a very different reason. So that, that definitely does seem to be uh, be the case in some situations. Yeah, for sure. What about books? And the way we like to frame this is we got this from Ryan Holiday. He calls them a quick book. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and, and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's weird. I read a lot of sci-fi and I always have. I think like science fiction has massively influenced how I think about things. Probably too much if you ask my wife, but um, I think uh, like two books that mean Snow Crash is the obvious one, which I think lots of people would come up with, but that really got me thinking about, you know, how humans and computers interface. And then uh, as a Brit, the whole culture series by Ian and Banks was like right at the early days. It's like, how does humanity interact with what we are now calling AIs or artificial intelligence? And, you know, in a future world where technology solves all your problems, how do you stop being bored? As like those books, Still now, I, I when I'm thinking about what we should do in certain situations or new technology, I often think back to it, those books. And if you look back at them, I mean, written 20 years ago or something, they're really, really quite prophetic on how they predicted where we would be. I've still not read any of those books yet, but I would say <laughs> probably 10 to 20% of podcast guests when I ask them these questions, like they do have a sci-fi book that they recommend. So I'm slowly coming around. I, I have to cave and I, I have to give them a chance at least. To me, it just feels like, so outside of my world that I have a hard time wrapping my head around it, but I'll give it a shot. Well, sometimes you have to get outside your world. If you want to, you know, discover the new, you have to get out of the comfort zone. So go for it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Let's switch gears now. Let's dive a bit into gravy. So just to start off, can we talk about the problem you solve? What is that problem? Yeah. So the problem is payments are really, really hard. And I think every retailer in the world has this, uh, you know, payments team or group of individuals they're out there trying to put all the spaghetti together. So how does Apple Pay work? How does Google Pay work? How does well, how do I connect um, different payment service providers, banks, alternative payment types? How do I choose where to send my money? All of this has kind of been done you know, traditionally by a small or big payments team at a particular company. And it kind of struck us that everyone's doing the same thing independently with custom code. So why don't we build that? Why don't we build a tool we can give to any retailer, merchant, shopping cart, bank that allows them to add, remove, change payment methods, route how they flow, determine how to get into a new country, accept the local payment types without needing this big army of engineers and this this big you know payments team. Because essentially, if you're, you're a shoe retailer, you should be selling shoes, not trying to navigate you know the hellscape that is payments. 
What made you decide to focus on this problem? I'm sure after your whole you know, 20 plus years in payments, there were a lot of different problems that could be solved. What was it about this problem or these problems specifically that made you say, yep, that's it. I'm going to go launch a new company around it. Frustration. <laughs> I was just, I, I realized this was a bottleneck, right? And I, and I was out investing on behalf of PayPal and, you know, going to retail and saying, look, I just invested in this cool company that has this technology. Why don't you use it? And just hearing, we would love to, but. And I just got frustrated. I think there's been some really great payment innovations that never got off the ground because of adoption and the difficulty of rolling out in a multi-pressured environment. And uh, I was frustrated. I'm like, this isn't that hard. Let's make it even easier. Let's just make it super easy so people can experiment and play around with new payment types. And hopefully that will get the payment world moving a little quicker and, and allow you know more innovation to be created and bigger problems to be solved. Can you think of a payment innovation that you were really excited about and you thought this had a lot of potential and then in the end it ended up not really delivering or succeeding or having the impact that you thought it would have? Yeah, I mean, like open banking has had such a slow start and you look at it and I mean, a bank-to-bank payment from one bank to another bank by a trusted, I mean, it's direct replacement for cash and it's just taken so long to get off the ground and it still is struggling like stuck in regulatory areas in some places and user experience in other places that frustrates me and then it struck me yesterday like i think next year is the 15th anniversary of bitcoin and blockchain must be 15 years like everybody's talking about it as an emerging tech like something's 15 years old it's not emerging anymore but that should have properly emerged and again little frustration around the things that could have happened with it and didn't makes a lot of sense. What are your views on Bitcoin today and just crypto in general today? I mean, my view is it's solving a problem or a set of problems. I wish it was a bit more environmentally friendly. That that would make it a lot easier to swallow. And I think there's people working on, on making that happen, but I still think there's, there's a big place for it and taking the power out of a, a small group of very powerful central banks is not a terrible thing. And if we just look at the payment space, how would you summarize the state of payments today? It is growing. I mean, it's there is a lot of innovation happening. I think there's a lot of innovation that's been stifled. I'm excited by it. You look at the PIX experience down in Brazil and UPI in India. There is some big things that could happen if it's only allowed to happen. And I mean, the other side is those innovations might be stifled by companies or groups that don't want the world to change. So I'd say it, it's more evolved than it was, but we're still going through the same sort of dance that we have been for the last 20 to 30 years where new innovation comes along, incumbents don't want the world to change, and it's an uphill struggle. But uh, you're starting to see it happen, when, especially when governments get behind things like the UPI and PICS, you really do start to see some excellent changes happening. And when it comes to gravy and your ICP, how do you think about your ICP? And, and what was that process like to uncover the ICP and get that right? Because that's something that I, I know a lot of founders really struggle with. I think, I mean, absolutely, it's really difficult. So we came into this with the assumption of where, what our ICP was. I don't think we were wrong. And and for us, an ICP is a mid to enterprise size retailer looking to either expand geographically or increase their payment options. And that hasn't changed a huge amount on the retail side. What has changed is we've realized that another large part of our client base is the people serving those peoples, as it were. So rather than selling directly to the retailer, selling to the shopping cart that services the retailer is a different route to get to the same place. 
But we actually realized that the suppliers to our ICP were just as important as our ICP. And I think the other thing that took us a long time is don't sell to people who aren't shopping. And I think that's an easy mistake to make when you've been in the sort of consumer payment space or just the consumer space. You know, people uh, will drive past the poster of the flashy new car every day and, and lust for it. That doesn't really happen in enterprise software sales. And so unless you've got a problem you actually need a solution for right now, there's really no point trying to sell to you. So, and that took us a while and a lot of wasted effort. What about messaging and positioning? How did you see that evolve? Yeah, that's another hard lesson to learn. So when you're building a product that could you know, eliminate roles or, or positions or organizations like a payments team, don't go off and sell to the head of the payments team. <laughs> like there, there is some vested interest there for no change. And uh, I think early days, we came in with what we would thought was a, an amazing solution for a lot of people's problems. But some people um, quickly realized that that problem and dealing with that problem was their role. So they weren't, even if it was going to solve their problems, they weren't going to buy it. So we had to definitely really think about how we positioned our product as a tool that will help payments teams move quicker, that will help companies innovate faster, rather than coming straight out and say, hey, we're going to replace your, your payments team or your engineers in this division, because uh, ultimately, you know, you're possibly selling to the person you might be putting out of a job. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. What's the go-to-market motion look like? So we're enterprise sales, so we're very account-based marketing. We do, you know, brand marketing online, but we're not uh, sort of, you know, stack them high and, and sell them cheap company. We will go after particular accounts. We'll go over particular businesses. We work with payment consultants and teams around the world who are working with retailers who are looking to add new PSPs or expand, and they know about our product and how we can help those merchants. So we have a, a small amount of very big clients, and that's by design. I believe orchestration is something you need when you get a bit bigger as a merchant, somewhere in the 50 million above of revenues. That's when you actually start caring a lot about the rates you're paying, having multiple PSPs, having alternate payment types, and really trying to optimize your payment flow. What about your market category? I introduced you as a payment orchestration platform. I think I stole that from your LinkedIn. Is that the right category or what is the market category? Yeah, I mean, that's where we'd put it. So it's a bit of a broad church. So when we started, I mean, lots of people claim they were the inventor of the term payment orchestration. But when we started, it was us and a few others in a similar time, payment orchestration had a particular meaning and that was really between the merchants and the PSBs and helping to do everything I've talked about before. I think since that time, a lot of attention us and some others got in this space. A lot of companies that don't really do that have started calling themselves payment orchestrators. So I think it's, it's a broad term. It's a bit like cloud and other things that get widely applied to things. But we, we would say we are a pure play payment orchestrator. And we would also say we're a cloud-based payment orchestrator and we're infrastructure as a service. So unlike anyone else in this space, the way that we do orchestration is as, as an you know, infrastructure, the software, 
service rather than a SaaS service. You don't connect to Gravy for Gravy to do the orchestration. Gravy rolls out instances of Gravy for you within your same region, your same area that allows you to manage orchestration. So it's a different way of doing it. So, you know, if there was a category of the, you know, cloud-based infrastructure orchestration and it's a bit different and it's a bit of a different way to do it, but it really does work for the enterprise retailer. What about growth? Are there any numbers that you can share? I mean, we're growing uh, transactionally. We're doubling month on month at the moment. So every month we're doing twice as many transactions as we did the month before. Um, revenue, I think we tripled in the last quarter. So we're growing nicely, but you know, it's a hard time to be an enterprise sales. I think if you talk to any startup, startup doing it now, when there's a recession, it's hard to sell to enterprises. So yeah, we're growing nicely. I'd love to grow quicker, but finding a founder that wouldn't say. So. <laughs> yeah, I think every founder wants to be able to say they're having growth like that, and I don't think that many are. So that's uh, that's especially impressive given the market today. What do you attribute to that growth, and what are you doing to rise above that noise and, and really hit this level of growth that you're hitting? It's about you know concentrating on doing a few things well, and I think early stages you're chasing after every squirrel really while you're trying to find your market position. I think we. We're very clear on where we fit in this market and where our clients fit and what the problems our clients are trying to solve. And we target those clients and we work with our clients very closely. And I think you know, the rise in volume is not because we're adding hundreds and hundreds of new clients, it's because we're growing with the customers we've got today and we're helping them do things better and therefore they're giving us more volume and that's growing our revenue while we add a few other big clients and we grow with them as well. We're very hands-on. We work very closely with our customers. We sort of, we help them in all different areas that aren't necessarily something we do, but we are really, you talk to a Gravy customer, they'll say Gravy feels like it's part of our team and that that's by design. And when it comes to fundraising, both from your time as a corporate VC and from your journey raising over 27 million so far, what would you say you learned about fundraising and what advice would you have for founders as they begin their fundraising journey? Yeah, so I, I sort of had a great big mega plan to start with. So I became a VC because I wanted to learn what it was like to sit on the other side of the table. So that was part of it. I wanted to sort of learn the game from both sides, as it were. And I kind of wanted to see what would get VCs excited. And, and by you know working at PayPal Ventures and meeting hundreds of startups and seeing what you know would get us excited, would get us interested in fundraising, I was able to take those learnings and apply them to when we went out and fundraised to start with. It didn't hurt that I've made a lot of great contacts in the VC environment during that time when we were kind of investing with others, et cetera. But like my number one lesson, and it wasn't, it's not my wisdom, someone told me it, is, you know, when you pick your VC, pick one you like as people, don't just look at the money. And that's because there's a good chance that person's going to be on your board with you for the next eight years or so. And they're being the nicest they're ever gonna be when they're trying to invest in you. Uh, when things go get tough, which they always do, and things aren't looking at rosy, make sure you pick someone you feel like you can trust to be on your side. Because I think that is it. They are more attached to your team than your employees, because you can't fire your VCs, right? They will be there, they'll be in the board, they'll be part of the future of your company. And so pick them as well as you would be picking your founders. If you were starting the company again today from scratch, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Probably go a bit slower to start with. We raised and launched during the, the boom times. And I think like a lot of the advice, the time is 
grow very quickly, like spend, grow, get as big as you can, as fast as you can. And then so sort of the wheels fell off, uh, off, off the, of that sort of model. So I think I, in, you know, earlier days, I would have liked to perhaps grow a little bit slower rather than, you know, growing to a, a, a larger number of people, embarking on a large amount of projects, because I think getting it right and then growing from there based on revenue is, is a better way to grow. And that's what we do now. But right at the beginning, we, we took the advice of like grow at all costs, like grow quickly, get market domination as fast as you can. And I think that ultimately hurt us when that stopped being the way that, that people wanted the world to work. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of founders. It went from grow at all costs to survive. <laughs> that yeah. was all, what it was all about. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a shock. <laughs> what about skills? What do you think is the most important skill for a B2B founder to have to be successful? Versatility, I think, and resilience are the two things, right? Uh, versatility, like as a founder, you wake up every day and you have no idea what you're going to be dealing with that day, right? Or working on. And so you will be, you know, going through spreadsheets and maybe doing fundraising one hour and next hour you might be working on your next marketing campaign. Then you might be flipping over to sales numbers, pitching to some clients. So like you're constantly going to be changing context over and over again, very, very quickly. And being versatile and able to do that to start with is super important. As you get bigger, hiring people who do that better than you is more important. But right at the beginning, you've got to be super versatile. You can't just come and say, I'm a really good engineer. You've got to be a, a good engineer that can do a bit of marketing, understand what the hell's going on with finance, do some pitches and go meet clients. It's You need to be able to do all those things as a, as a founder CEO you've got to stick to it. Like you, you get beaten a lot. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a, I'm a endurance athlete and it's very similar to that, right? Just like the last five miles of your marathon, it hurts like hell. It's a sensitive topic. I have an ultra, ultra race coming up on uh, <laughs> Saturday. <laughs> What's the, uh, the longest ride you've ever done? I cycle from uh, San Francisco to LA every year to raise money for AIDS life cycles, so AIDS charities. So I do that and there's a, a 100 mile day in the middle of it. And which was my longest until this year where I did Paris to Geneva this year. So I'm cycling from London to Australia over 25 years and doing a leg every year. First year I did London, Paris, which was relatively sane. Um, last year I did Paris, Geneva, which was 80 to 90 miles every day with a mountain in the way. And that, that was pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine you get a massive high at the end of that though too, right? Or like the, the buzz that you're feeling after the pain wears away. Oh, yeah, it's generally the buzz comes first and then you party and the next day you wake up and like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Something that I've read a lot in the media, I'm sure you have too, is this idea that Silicon Valley is in a state of decline and it's the end of Silicon Valley. You're obviously not from Silicon Valley, as we yeah. you talked about at the start. You have a very different accent, a very pleasant accent, but you're not from here. So I want to ask, how important do you think it is to be based in Silicon Valley? And maybe a better way to ask that is if you were starting your career again today, imagine you were 20 years old, you could move anywhere. Would you move to Silicon Valley or would you move elsewhere? Yeah, I'd, I'd still come here. And I think perhaps less so than it was five years ago that not everybody is here. Five years ago, everybody was here um, that you needed to talk to. I think Silicon Valley, a number of different things. Lifestyle's great. That's part of it. And that does help as an entrepreneur, being able to do something other than uh, staying indoors with your, your, your laptop. I think it really helps. I think also being surrounded by other entrepreneurs 
being surrounded by people who've done it before. The breadth of you know experience you can tap into here is huge. There's a lot of VCs here. I mean, I think it's still eight times more venture money in Silicon Valley than anywhere else in the world. So look, it is the place to be, but I think also the work attitude here, the inquisitiveness, like you can go to a pub or a bar or whatever and sit, you know, in a, a stool next to someone and have a pretty inspirational conversation, whether they're a, a fireman or an entrepreneur and, and other parts of the world, that doesn't necessarily always happen. I'm, I moved here eight years ago before that was in London and then I was brought up in Switzerland. So I've lived in many different places. But I do find here, uh, I just have better conversations. Yeah, I found that as well. And how, how I heard it described, and I and now repeat this to people because they, they really nailed it, at least if you're just looking at the U.S., they said in New York, you're measured on how much money you have. In L.A., you're measured on who you know. And in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, you're measured on your aspirational level and how aspirational you are. And I think that's just a, a very exciting environment to be in. And, and I've seen that just from my uh, time here the last two years. Absolutely. And it doesn't, I mean, it's not just tech, right? I think as well as cycling, I swim in the ocean and I remember a swim club and uh, you'll go into the sauna after getting very cold in the water and, you know, you'll be talking to people who've been world records or, you know, swam from Hawaii to wherever, like, and, and it's just the amazing concentration of like talented people in, in the Bay Area. Yep. hundred percent agree. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? I think where Gravy will be is we will be the central point of integrations for for retailers around the world with their payment types. And I think we'll be the trusted integration route that people will use when you go and create a website and you want to sell things online, you'll go, okay, the logical place to start is Gravy from a payments perspective and then take it from there. And I think we are positioning ourselves well to be that sort of central hub into the payment ecosystem. Amazing. John, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and they just want to follow along with your company building journey, where should they go? I mean, LinkedIn is probably the best place. Or, you know, podcasts like this. I'm, I'm dyslexic. I prefer not to write. I prefer to talk. But on LinkedIn, you'll often find me hanging out there rather than any of the other networks. Amazing. John, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. This was a lot of fun. Sounds good. Cheers. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 